a joy this morning to sing from the Trinity hymnal. I'll tell you why. The hymnal that I am accustomed to using, the Psalter hymnal, does not have the fourth stanza that you have in the Trinity hymnal. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So I'm, I'm always happy to be in a congregation that sings that stanza. And I understand, uh, you may be aware of it, the OPC, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and the URC are working on a, a joint hymnal, which should be ready in a couple of years. I don't know yet which version, it would be the Trinity hymnal or the Psalter hymnal of this particular hymn, but I hope it's the uh, Trinity hymnal version of God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Again, I'm very happy and thankful to be uh, with you this morning. I feel uh, it's a debt I owe to you as a congregation for your pastor assisting us both at the Good Friday service, but I also want to commend him as I did when he uh, spoke at our preaching conference this past June not only because he participated in that from his, uh, and take, took away from his busy schedule, but he was brave enough to speak to us uh, and to our students on Romans chapter 7, one of the most difficult passages to interpret in all of Scripture. And he did it in a way that uh, was clearly understood not only by the faculty, by his peers, but also by our students. And uh, we're, we're very grateful for that. I think you did an excellent job, and I hope you've had opportunity to preach that same material here to your congregation. So we're thankful for that. I invite you to turn this morning in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 73. Psalm 73, our passage for this morning's message. I'm going to read it first and then walk our way through it as I proclaim this word of God given by his spirit. This is a Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless this to our hearts. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know how many of you have had opportunity to visit the Art Institute in Chicago, but if you have, there's a famous painting among the numerous, countless famous paintings, priceless pieces of art, by a French painter by the name of Georges Seurat. Georges Seurat was a painter in the latter part of the 19th century. He was part of the post-impressionist movement. And he has a famous painting, a large painting, I believe that it still remains in a separate room from other paintings uh, of that period in art history. It's a large painting, 10 feet wide, 6 feet tall. But what makes that painting famous is not what's depicted. What's depicted is a beautiful Parisian park on a Sunday afternoon. People reclining on the grass, people bicycling, running to and fro along the river's edge. What makes the painting famous is the technique that Seurat used to depict that park on a Sunday afternoon. He didn't take the brush and simply place a stroke of paint across the canvas. He dipped the brush into the paint and put a dot on the canvas. Dot after dot after dot after dot. Yellow, green, red, blue. He did that for four years. And I've often thought about that. What kind of perseverance it takes for a man to paint like that for four years, three and a half, four years. Imagine him coming home from his studio at the end of the day and he walks into his house and his wife says, honey, what have you been doing all day? And he says, I've been painting dots. I've been painting dots. I've been painting dots. But those dots are like pixels on a computer screen or a TV screen. If you go to the Art Institute and you stand very close, just a few inches or a couple feet away from that painting, all you see are these individual dots of different colors. But you stand back 10 feet, 20 feet. You stand to the the far wall opposite that painting and all those dots of color begin to blend together and you have that famous painting. I'm sure you've seen it or seen prints of it. It's well known. It was even on the movie, I believe, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, for those of you who are old enough to remember that. I don't want to give away my age. But it's a beautiful depiction, but you can only appreciate it if you step back. And I've often thought of that painting as a beautiful description of how you are to understand Psalm 73, the message that's being conveyed by Asaph, the psalmist. The key to understanding this psalm is to understand the perspective that eternity makes. It makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in the world. And the question that's being posed to us as we read this and as we meditate upon this today is, how do you view your life? How do you view your life in terms of of struggles, of pain, of, of doubt, of envy, of anger? of the Lord's work in your life. You know, we sang, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. What does that look like, practically speaking? 
think there are really two parts to this psalm, and that's why I want to preach from the whole psalm, because really it's a, it's a journey. It's the psalmist Asaph describing things that are very painful as well as personal. He's describing the journey that he took that led him from bitterness and envy to doxology, to praise and adoration, to glory. And I wonder if you've noticed as you read through this with me, those two parts. They're like two parts that are divided by a fulcrum. And I wonder if you saw where that transition took place in the psalm. Did you listen carefully to how he describes the struggle against envy and bitterness? What that looked like and where that led him to? And then what changed that? Was it a change in his circumstances? That somehow the Lord waved a magic wand and everything in his life changed? No. I'll pause and I'll ask you to think about that for just a moment, but where in that psalm is the transition? And ultimately then, what does that transition lead to? How does that perspective then change? And the question I want to ask you is, do you have that same perspective the psalmist has? He begins, notice, with this beautiful affirmation. Really, the, the psalm has these bookends. We call it inclusio. That's the technical word. But there's the affirmation at the beginning and at the end. God is good to Israel, to his people, to those who are pure in heart, meaning those who, who have their hearts set on one thing above all else, the glory of God, to seek to do his will, to seek to follow him. And then at the end he says, but for me it's good to be near God. That's how he orients his life. Life has meaning. Life has purpose. Life has fulfillment and joy when it is lived in the presence of God, a God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love and kindness. But he's honest. And don't you just love the honesty of the Psalms? I'm sure your pastor has impressed upon you the place of the Psalms in the Christian life. These were not written by men living in ivory towers. These are not some philosophical or theological uh, deliberations that are far removed or detached from reality. These are people living in the real world like you and like me. And he has the honesty by the Spirit of God to say, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So you get the picture in your mind here of someone who at one point in his life was almost on the precipice. He's almost looking into, as it were, the abyss and ready to fall into the abyss. I mean, this is someone who's dealing perhaps with serious depression. Envy really is the character of his struggle. Notice he says in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant. That's the presenting issue. That's what he's wrestling with. He's envious of the arrogant. He sees the prosperity of the wicked. Let me try to explain that in terms of some examples to, uh, to flesh this out. Imagine two businessmen in a town like Champaign or a town like Urbana, this community like this. You have one man who is a professing Christian businessman and he wants to be a man of integrity. He wants to, to work hard not only, but he wants to treat his clients fairly he wants to be good to his customers. He wants to be known as someone who, who is a person of integrity in the community. 
somebody who can be trusted, relied upon. He wants to be active in his community. He's known as a family man. He loves his wife, he loves his children, he's faithful to his wife. He may be a leader, an elder in his own church, but his business is facing foreclosure. He's on the brink of losing it all. Somewhere else in town, there's another businessman, a competitor, someone who makes no profession of faith whatsoever, someone who's not known to be a person of integrity. In fact, he cuts corners, he cheats, he steals from his customers, he steals from the government by not paying his taxes. He even cheats on his wife. He ignores his children. He's a pariah in his community, and yet his business thrives. And the Christian businessman says to himself, or he may even pray to the Lord, how can this be? If I am someone who puts my trust in the God who is sovereign over all things, a God who knows all things, sees all things, ordains all things, how can it be that I have to struggle like this and I face the prospect of bankruptcy and this person across town who cheats and steals, the one who's not known at all for his integrity, he seems to flourish, he seems to prosper. He's gonna be adding on to his business. It doesn't seem right. Or think of another scenario. You have a Christian family, maybe a family like one of yours in this congregation with a small child, five-year-old child who has just been diagnosed with leukemia and has to begin a course of chemotherapy or radiation, whatever the case may be. And there are other five-year-old children of unbelieving families. These children are healthy. These children are strong. They're flourishing. And again, the question that nags in the back of the mind of the believing family is, why must this happen to us? Why must we struggle? Do you ever have struggles like that? Do you ever ask questions like that? Are you ever honest enough with the Lord to cry out to him and say, why? This doesn't seem right, it doesn't seem fair. And what begins to happen when these things are not resolved is that there is this growing bitterness, envy, that eats away, it corrodes at the very soul. But what does it do? That eating away of the soul often results in a distorted view of the world around us. Again, it's like looking at that painting only two or three inches away from the painting itself, and it makes no sense. I've often compared this description in Psalm 73 of what happens when you go to a county fair or an amusement park and you go into a hall of mirrors. You stand in front of one mirror, you're 10 feet tall. You stand in front of another mirror, you're eight feet wide. It's not a true representation of, of reality, of who you are, of what life is like. It's a distortion. Notice. Notice how envy and anger and bitterness distort the psalmist's perception of the world around him. Here's how he describes the wicked. He says, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, which in the ancient world was a sign of prosperity. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Now, you and I know that there are many, many unbelieving people who are poor, who become sick, who have all sorts of personal or family problems. We know that. I see that in prison. But as far as Asaph is concerned, his view is so warped, all he can conclude is God's people must suffer and the wicked seem to prosper and it doesn't seem right. It's not fair. 
Either God is punishing us unfairly or God is ignoring us or there's really no point in following and putting my trust in this God of the covenant. And to make matters worse, it's not just that the wicked thrive, but they have to add insult to injury. Notice verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Contrast that with what the Apostle Paul says in Titus 2 about letting your, your doctrine adorn you. I love that expression. You, know, you think about that in terms of this community. Do people know the members of All Souls congregation because their doctrine adorns them? It beautifies them. But the wicked seem to wear pride and arrogance like a garment. Violence as well. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. And what do they do? They don't just live in isolation from the believing world. They scoff. Verse 8. They speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They're the kind of people who when they see God's people, Christians, suffering, they will respond by saying, really? I thought your God was sovereign. I thought God promised to bless you. I thought God promised to be near to you. Where's your God when your child is sick with leukemia? Where's your God? Where's God's sovereignty when your business is on the verge of collapse? They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? You know, these are the kind of people that that prosper, they flourish financially. They have large estates. They may even build huge skyscrapers in major metropolitan areas and have the arrogance to put their name in gold letters on the front and then run for office. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. There's his distortion. They increase in riches. Now think about that. You say, well, this couldn't happen to me. I would never talk that way. But really? One of the things that I, I have discovered in the last year or so of teaching at Divine Hope is when I teach pastoral care and counseling, we talk about how we perceive, how we understand, and how we interpret the world around us. Because our minds and our hearts are always interpreting. They're trying to make sense of the world in which we live. And we're always listening to voices. And you know what voice you listen to more than any other voice? Your own voice. That internal dialogue that's telling you this isn't right, this is unfair, you're being mistreated. God's neglecting you, God's ignoring you, God's punishing you. God's not fair, God's not kind, okay? And what I've, what I've encouraged our students to understand is that you can have two people who experience the same circumstances and come to very different conclusions. And his conclusion here, at least at this point in his spiritual journey is, the wicked seem to prosper and God's people seem to suffer. But what's the conclusion he draws? The conclusion from the observation is this, verse 13. If you're listening carefully to the psalm, he says, all in vain, have I kept my heart clean 
and wash my hands in innocence. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, really, what, what this has told me is that coming here on a Sunday morning, trying to, to honor the Lord through obedient living, making the sacrifices and commitments I make as a Christian, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of time. And the world says, you better believe it's a waste of time. There may be people who, as they see you exit the building here, will say, why did you waste your time doing that? What is your God going to do for you anyway? And the underlying assumption, the underlying belief that drives this person's life, ASAS life, is if I'm a believer in the one true God, my life must be comfortable, it must be prosperous, and it must go as I desire it to go. There is no room in that worldview for, for suffering, for pain, for sorrow, for dealing with adversity, the adversity of the wicked taunting, jeering at you. All in vain, he says, have I kept my heart clean. Verse 14, for all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. As I said, he's on the, the precipice, he's on the brink of falling into the abyss. But something stops him. It's the thought of what despair, falling into despair, would do, not just for him, but for others around him. Maybe he's thinking of future generations, his children, his grandchildren. What will this witness be in terms of a witness to my children, to succeeding generations? He said, I would have spoken thus. If I had spoken thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But you see, this doesn't resolve the issue ultimately. I mean, he stops, he refrains from going over the edge. But ultimately, that doesn't, that doesn't give clarity to what he's going through. It doesn't make sense of his circumstances. Because he says in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Who can understand the mysteries of God's providence? Who can understand why God's people have to suffer? Who can understand why the wicked not only flourish, they're prosperous, successful, but they oppress, they brutalize, they commit violence against not only God's people, but against helpless victims. And then verse 17. If you haven't seen it by now, that is the transition point. That's the fulcrum upon which this message, this psalm rests. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. That is the end of the wicked, their destiny. What was it about the sanctuary that made this such a transitional part of his experience? It wasn't just the architecture, whether it be the tabernacle or the temple. It wasn't just the excitement of being with other believers and the joy that we all can talk about in terms of worshiping together, fellowshipping together. No, I think the real point he's making is that at the sanctuary of God, he's confronted by the revelation of God, the word of God, the promises of God. It's where the proclamation of the word of God puts life into perspective. It makes sense. So aren't you glad you're here this morning? Because if you weren't here this morning, would life make much sense for you? 
There is something about the Lord's Day. By the Lord's very design, the Lord's Day is intended not just to be a time for physical rest. It is, it is the opportunity in which the Lord puts all of life back into perspective because there are so many things throughout the week that want to pull us in any number of directions. You're paying your bills. You're keeping the business going. You're, you're bringing the kids from one place to another, school or other activities, all the pressures, all the things going on in our lives that can easily distort our vision. And then on a Sunday morning, 9 o'clock, 10.30 in the morning, you come here and life makes sense again. Because here we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here we see ultimately what our destiny is. And that's what gives him hope. That's what keeps him from going over the edge into the abyss. It also reminds him of ultimately what will be the destiny of the wicked. Notice verse 18. Truly, in terms of the wicked, truly God sets them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So you can have people who are despotic leaders, people who slaughter thousands, even millions of people, and talk about the establishment, say, of a, a thousand-year reign, only to see it fall to pieces in 12 years. You have people who brutalize, people who steal, people who cheat, people who oppress, victimize. They may prosper for a while, says Psalm 73, but ultimately their destiny is destruction. So the question that emerges here in Psalm 73 is, why would I be envious of them? Why would I want to be like them when their destiny is destruction? I wonder how many of you have ever seen a hearse with luggage racks or a hearse hauling a U-Haul trailer behind it. You can't take it with you. The pharaohs thought they could. They would have all their possessions and even their servants. Imagine being a servant, a young man, serving a pharaoh who was an old man and the nervousness you might feel when the, the health of the pharaoh begins to waver and ultimately he dies. You're put to death along with him because he needs servants in the afterlife. But Psalm 73 says, ultimately, the, the fate of everyone who despises God is destruction. Verse 21, what should be a proper response then to a person, a believer, who was so engulfed, so convinced that the wicked are going to flourish and it's been an utter waste of time to be a believer? He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. It's the conviction of sin, isn't it? It's one thing that I've learned in a very vivid way in prison ministry, in a way that in 21 years of pastoral ministry I rarely saw, where you have men coming to terms with their past. One thing I discovered when I did uh, jail ministry at Cook County Jail in Chicago was there wasn't a single guilty man among them. You walk into that environment where they're awaiting trial, they're all innocent. They've all been framed. And I was expecting that sort of thing when I went into Danville prison 
only to discover that that's quite the opposite. You do enough time in prison, you come to terms with what you've done. There can be great remorse. I was reading a paper this past week of a student. I'm teaching a class this semester on the Christian family. And, and it's a painful thing for these men to write about what we've been learning because it brings back all these painful memories of their own shortcomings, their failures with their own families. And the point is, at least for me, is not to beat them up over it. But I've written on some papers this past week, so what do we do now with our pasts? Where do we find forgiveness and restoration? You can't take back those things that happened in the past, but there is forgiveness. There's a conviction of wrongdoing, but there has to be, first of all, that conviction that I have to turn around. My way and my perspective have to change. And they do here for the psalmist. So that he not only recognizes his foolishness, first of all, but secondly, you notice from verse 23 onward, he begins to embrace what is his, what is yours, what is mine, what is ours. What do we have that the world does not have? even the wealthiest, most successful, most powerful man on the face of the earth. What don't they have? Nevertheless, he says, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. An imagery here of what? Intimacy, of tenderness. This is not God who's removed at a distance in some control room, just pushing buttons, pulling levers. This is a God who walks alongside of us. That's why Psalm 23 can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Well, is that just uh, David in a moment of bravado? David the tough guy? David the warrior? I will fear no evil? No, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You know, there are some people who say, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear because... Death is nothing. Death isn't real. The ancient uh, Epicureans said that there's no afterlife, so death is nothing. But that's not the biblical perspective. I will not fear evil. I will not fear death because God is with me. You guide me with your counsel. So there's a perspective here, isn't there? And that's why we sang this morning, God moves in a mysterious way. We're going to sing later on, Be still my soul. There's an awareness that God brings us through these trials. So often when we pray for the Lord to help us in times of trial, what do we pray? We pray, Lord, deliver me from this. Lord, help me to avoid this. Help me to escape this. Extract me from this situation. When oftentimes, isn't it true the Lord says, no, what I have in mind for you is to go through that. And by going through that, your faith is made that much richer, that much stronger, that much more mature. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to what? Not disappointment, not the abyss, but glory. Glory! Such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has ever comprehended a glory in which to enjoy God forever. It's when he steps back that he begins to realize that. And so he says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. What a remarkable transformation. Going from envy 
of the prosperity of the wicked. I'm envious of the big house. I'm envious of the nice car. I'm envious of, of the career with the nice vacation package. I'm envious of the early retirement. I'm envious of the good health. To go from that to there is nothing I desire besides God himself. If I have that by the grace of God, there's nothing else I desire. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. So there's a, an awareness that our strength dissipates. There are times where we struggle in terms of our faith, and yet God is the one who upholds us. God is the one who brings us to our appointed end. For behold, verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So he begins by confessing his struggle, but he ends with this doxology of praise, which is the point that the Lord has for all of us in terms of where is our life leading us, leading towards towards glory, towards praise, doxology. And it's remarkable that Asaph, the prophet in the Old Testament, could speak this way, living as he did so many years before the coming of Jesus Christ. He could only see in a very shadowy way what you and I can now embrace fully through the revelation of Jesus Christ. When I think of Psalm 73, I hear the echo of Romans 8, don't you? Which asks that question, is God for me? Is God for you? Is God working all things out for your, for your salvation, for his glory? How do you know that? How can you be sure of that, says Paul in Romans 8. And he says this, remember? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, freely, would we ever doubt that he would ever deprive us of anything that we need? That in Jesus Christ, I have all that I need for this life and for all eternity. And I hear that echo here in Psalm 73. Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. It's good to be in the house of the Lord today. It's good to worship in his presence. It's good to be reminded that all things are being led by his counsel and that we are being led towards glory. So I'll conclude this morning by asking you the question, how do you see your life? There's young, there are some who are not young among us, children, seniors among us. How do you look at your life? Many of us perhaps struggle with looking at life simply from the end of our nose in the sense that like that painting, all you can see are these individual dots of color. Seem confusions, confusing, they seem to make no sense whatsoever. There seems to be no rhyme or reason to it. And then you step back and the word of God does that. Like the psalmist entering into the sanctuary, he steps back and he sees this beautiful panorama and he sees on the horizon eternity and he says now, now this makes sense. 
Now I understand, whereas at first I thought that God was being dismissive, God was being distant from me, God was being someone who really didn't care about me. I see that I'm in the best possible position that anybody could be. I am safe in the arms of my God. May the Lord bless this to your hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would apply this word to our hearts. We think of those who may be struggling today to make sense out of suffering, out of pain, out of unanswered prayer. We pray that you would give us the eyes to see the perspective of eternity and that it holds out for us glory, the fullness of salvation, perfect fellowship with you, And so, Father, forgive us when we have been envious of the arrogant and the foolish and those whose ways are leading to destruction. Teach us to be able to say, though our hearts, our flesh may fail, you are the strength of our hearts. You are our portion forever. And we thank you that that is now secured for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, the one who gave himself to us, for us, for your glory, for our salvation, so that we might be sure, sure beyond a shadow of a doubt, that indeed, if you are for us, who then can be against us? Hear us then, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.